You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 4th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show, could a vote from Republican Senator Rand Paul help US Democrats overturn Donald Trump's national emergency declaration and his plans to build a wall? Will I veto it? 100%. 100%. And I don't think it survives a veto. We have too many smart people that want border security, so I can't imagine it could survive a veto, but I will veto it, yes. We'll discuss that soon. Also ahead, Estonia is on track to get its first female prime minister after the opposition Liberal Reform Party won the general election. Could it now form a coalition with other political groups to marginalise a right-wing Eurosceptic party? I'll be joined by my guests Stephen Diel and Jonathan Fenby. Plus, Beijing in lockdown as thousands of delegates converge on China's Great Hall of the People for the largest political event of the year. And... Leave school, but stay on for another year before going to college. Why Boston, Massachusetts says an extra 12 months in the classroom is a better way to equip young people for university. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. And my guests today are the writer, broadcaster and Russia analyst Stephen Diel and Jonathan Fenby. Jonathan is the former editor of the South China Morning Post and now chairman of China Research and director of European Political Research at TS Lombard. So, gentlemen, welcome both of you to the programme. Now, when Democrats refused to give the US President Donald Trump the $5.7 billion he demanded to build his border wall with Mexico, he retaliated by declaring a national state of emergency, allowing him to take the money from other federal budgets. However, it looks as if that plan could be about to be foiled thanks to Republican Senator Rand Paul. Mr Paul, who can normally be relied upon to support the president, says he'll back a resolution overturning the declaration, which he claims extends the president's powers, quote, beyond their constitutional limits. Jonathan, how much of a surprise is it that Rand Paul is going against a man whom he normally backs? Well, uh, it's not that much of a surprise, because although you say you know, he often backs Trump, uh, he, like his father before him, uh, nurtures a, a certain profile of independence, let us say, within the limits and, you know, in this case, he's come out uh, against this on constitutional grounds, which he and his father have always been uh, very keen in I- invoking. But on his past record, he's often caved at the last minute, as in his opposition to Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, uh, where he was one round in the end. Uh, and in any case, as uh, you showed in your clip, uh, Trump says he'll veto this uh, if it's found against him. So uh, this is more more interesting, I think, more broadly, because there are, there are a number of other Republicans who may uh, also vote against Trump, uh, as to whether we're ever going to see a sign of, uh, I wouldn't call it rebellion, but let's say a certain amount of um, independence within the Republican Party. And, and let's develop this, Stephen, because he's looking at it, or his, his, his opposition is based on a constitutional point, but it does also look fairly principled. 
and the Republican Party has been accused by its critics of being unprincipled because of the blinding loyalty it gives to Donald Trump when it, there are instances where he clearly doesn't deserve it. Yeah, and I think in this case um, th there is a constitutional point because quite clearly this is not a national emergency. Um, that's That's been shown. Um, so obviously the, the Democrats will, will vote against it and it won't take many Republicans to say, uh, actually, you know, the president is exceeding his authority, which he is, by calling it a national emergency when it's not. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one of those you think, well, you know, it could run and run. It'll be kicked around and, and go back and forth. Um, I think it may come to a point where Trump actually will have to start thinking, actually, you know, we're now into 2019. We're quite well into 2019. We're in the third month of 2019. Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be elections within two years. You know, he's, he's more than halfway through his, his term. Uh, you know, is it, is it actually worth... Um, I mean, this I'm talking logically, of course, mm. logically, which doesn't always apply to Donald <laughs> Trump. Um, but, you know, is it worth pushing for this when actually there are far more serious issues that America is facing? But we yeah. know that Trump is the master of smoke and mirrors. So the yeah. fact that he's actually using this term, a national emergency, and it clearly resonates with, with the base... He may well. It could, it could still well connect with people. In other words, they're not. They may not necessarily be interested in the in, interested in the constitutionality of the whole thing. It, it's more safety. Yes, absolutely. And immigration. You know, these these are the dog whistle uh, terms that he's used uh, in here. But while it may resonate with the base. One has to start asking whether actually his pursuit of the the emergency, the wall, his kind of single-minded focus on this uh, is actually going to turn off quite a lot of moderate uh, Republican voters um, because it seems to show, you know, a man who is either completely uh, fixated by something that is wrong and, and, and false and so on, or that he is endlessly playing to the gallery uh, in a way that will have diminishing returns. Mm. And, and let's pick up on the point which, which you made earlier, Jonathan. I'd like you to address it, Stephen, and, and that is this, this sense that maybe, just maybe, what is happening with Rand Paul and a couple of other Republicans who aren't happy about this may be evidence of something perhaps a bit more significant that's happening internally in the Republican Party, because it does face a, 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 an, an, an inner crisis, but also one, some would say, an existential crisis as well. Indeed. Um, I'm going to quote from my favourite singer of all time, Leonard Cohen, uh, in his song Anthem, where he says, there is a crack where the light gets in. Uh, and maybe this is, this is the crack, or one of uh, perhaps a few cracks that are appearing. Um, the Republicans generally have stuck behind the president he is you know he's he's their man um there's a there's whatever they might think there's always a certain party political loyalty in in any system um but i think that you know this idea that he is overstretching himself he's calling it a national emergency when it's not um and someone like Rand paul coming out quite vociferously and saying you know normally you know i speak with a loud voice and support the president uh, but on this occasion i can't that may well encourage others who are seeing the light coming through the cracks to say, actually, you know, he's, he's, he's backing the wrong horse here. Yeah, and I think as Stephen was saying earlier on, you know, we have to see this in the context of uh, next year being the big election year. And 
all the signs are that Trump, you know, wants to run for re-election. There is no Republican that we can see uh, who is challenging him. There's a there's no shortage Would they dare? of Democrats. <laughs> Would they dare? Exactly. And, and this, you know, the interesting thing now will be whether the Republican majority in the Senate uh, decides that its best chance of retaining that majority is to go along with Trump or whether actually it wants to be able to take a distance from him, which it has to do very carefully, given the nature of the man and the revenge that he could uh, wreak uh, on them, and whether Republican senators can find uh, room, as it were, within their states uh, to be more of their own man or woman um, without uh, upsetting the Trump uh, ego and apple cart and bringing <laughs> bringing his uh, attacks on them. Uh, this is all, you know, uh, shaping up to be quite a messy, I think, election next year. But, all the more interesting for that. <laughs> but, but, but before we actually sort of take, take some, an, another look at the election in the time available, I mean, look, Stephen, at the end of the day, this will go to court. There are several lawsuits that are challenging this declaration. Do you think that ultimately it's those lawsuits that could actually resolve all of this where politics fails? I think it's those lawsuits which could delay the whole process so long that in fact it may not get through in this presidential term anyway. Uh, and in which case then, as Jonathan was saying, you know, yeah, clearly Trump, it seems, wants to stand again. Um, you know, will be it'll be seconds out round two were he to be re-elected, which of course is also a big question. So it may just die a death because it doesn't get. There's no time to get it through in this presidential term, and perhaps Trump doesn't mm. get re-elected. But if he does re- get re-elected, or certainly oh, he run gets, with it again, if he gets re, he will certainly run with it again. Yes, I mean it's a, it's one of these things. You know, many politicians in many countries have this, where they 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 have something which means so much to them. Uh, that it rather blinds them to everything else around them. And this seems to be the case with, with the wall. I mean, I'm kind of thinking outside the box here, Jonathan, but one of the things which, which we know about Donald Trump is that he has this, what I call, long-distance envy of political strong guys, the tough men. Yeah. And does that admiration and perhaps a desire to to be like them underpin this ambition to pick at the parts of the US Constitution which he doesn't particularly like, and perhaps this is his way of using the courts, using the system as far as he possibly can to to get close to realising his ambition to be like um, the Putins and um, the Erdogans and the various other individuals who um, use their authority to to impose their personalities, etc., on the population. Yes, I mean, if he can find a way of of, of running round the constitution... Uh, to give himself greater authority, he's going to do that. I mean, he, he, I think, basically sees himself as somebody who is shackled by the system, by the Constitution and so on, and longs for the kind of freedom. That's why you see uh, the evident envy for uh, authoritarian leaders. It was interesting, when he was in uh, Beijing um, uh, back 18 months ago almost now, and there was a moment when he said, I've reached these agreements with Xi Jinping, agreements with, of course, didn't really come to anything and so on, and this was on North Korea, um, 
And I know that if anybody can put them into uh, operation, it's President Xi, who he'd earlier called, you know, the king of China. And you could see in Trump's uh, eyes almost, I wish I was in that kind of position. When I grow up, I want to be like him. I want to be like him, <laughs> absolutely, you know. And his admiration for Kim at the uh, the Hanoi summit uh, last week, which he can't hold himself back uh, from saying, um, which you have to think it, it is a kind of envy. Mm. But then I guess that the, the worrying thing, Stephen, going forward to 2020 is that, I mean, if he, if he does win on this one, it could perhaps embolden him. And again, it's how you sell it to people so they don't feel afraid if their constitution is being dismantled before their very eyes. Yeah, that, that is it. And I think that's why, you know, I'm sure the Democrats will try as many legal challenges as they can, if only to kick it far enough down the road that it's not going to be able to go through uh, in this in this presidential term or, or even if it receives approval then there just won't be time to to spend the money on it but they will they will fight tooth and nail because they're dead against this okay well no such trouble in estonia which is on track for its first female prime minister after the opposition liberal reform party won the country's general election it's now thought that kajakalas whose father also served as prime minister could form a coalition government with centrist and moderate parties now that would potentially contain or isolate the threat from a right-wing Eurosceptic party called EKRE, which doubled its previous share of the vote after campaigning on anti-immigration measures and a promise to slash income and excise taxes. Before we actually look at these different parties, the thing which strikes me about um, Kajikalis' victory, Stephen, is that here you've got a woman who's, who's won at a time when it's the month of International Women's well, it's International Women's Day this week, in fact, but also the fact that she's part of this endangered political species, in other words, the leader of a liberal democracy. <laughs> so I suppose that um, she's the fact that she's succeeded, it, it does actually give us some hope that the species can survive. <laughs> it does, indeed. I mean, actually, Estonia gives me huge hope. Uh, yes, it's a very small country, a population of about 1.3 million of that, an electorate of just over 800,000. Um, but they have done so many things right since they regained their independence from the Soviet Union in 1991. Um, and so things like, um, you know, equality of rights, you know, they have a, they have a female president as well already. Um, it's the surprising thing is that they haven't had a, a female prime minister yet, you know, but it's, it's not, this is not tokenism. She's not becoming prime minister because she's a woman. But, you know, she is the leader of that party and she got that on on, uh, uh, on her own merits. Um, and it's a, it's a country which um, it's shown that it's prepared to grasp the opportunities. It, it It's a digitalised country. Um, people can become e-citizens uh, of Estonia. Um, and they have, a, if they do, then they have access to a, a, an email system which is uncrackable. Um, they, 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 they've been very, very cool. They, they, they were the ones who came up with Skype, actually. Skype, um, Skype was, was invented, invented in, Estonia. in Estonia. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, I've given that to the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, I, I think the, you know, so in that sense... The, the 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 victory of uh, of, of Kajakalis and and her party, or you know that they're the largest party. They'll have to be a coalition government, as there have has been, and that that's you know they they, they can cope with that. That's that's normal. The the worrying uh, side to it, though, is is the fact that EKRE ECRI has has doubled its vote and you know got nearly eighteen percent of mm. the vote, um, and that is you know that that's that's a, a warning bell as sure. as we have seen across Europe and indeed in And that's the interesting the thing, isn't it, Jonathan, because there is an element of replication here in terms of yep. the reasons why ECRI actually succeeded. They got that 19%. 
Yeah, which is often the kind of bar that you see for these kind of populist, anti-immigrant, anti-EU uh, parties. But... Uh, dangerous to say so. And of course, we have Italy, which may be uh, proving a different kind of example. But generally, there seems to be a kind of ceiling set uh, around there. Mm. And as, if I'm right, in Estonia, the two main parties have actually been very successful at alternating power they have, between they have, themselves, yeah, yeah. which if you were, uh, of course, a, a member of the outsiders, you'd say, oh, that's typical, cynical, the establishment is sewing things up uh, among mm. itself. But uh, it does tell you something, I think, mm. about about the the, the stability of the political system. Yeah, what will be really interesting um, will be to see the research that I'm sure will go on and to see how much perhaps Russian influence there was, um, which which led to that 17.8% that uh, for ECRI. Um, the, we know it was mainly from the rural vote. Mm. Um, of course, Estonia has a, a quarter of the country, 25% of the population are Russian ethnic Russians. And they, and they supported her victory because but she wants to protect the language. Indeed. Many of them, yeah. many of them supported, supported her victory. Um, so, you know, it's not... You, you can't say, oh, well, it's the Russians who voted for ECRI. Um, in fact, on the contrary, you know, ECRI is, is, is against immigration and therefore um, maybe tended to be more uh, anti, mm. uh, anti-Russian. But didn't um, they also benefit, though, from austerity because it was affecting the, rural, the people in rural communities who felt that, you know, in spite of Estonia's progress, they're being left behind. And that's sounds very familiar. Yeah, they, they, exactly. Um, uh, and so, you know, most of the people in, in the cities, in places like Tallinn, um, will be pro-European, pro-NATO, although I've, I've, uh, I was in Estonia in 2017 and got into conversations with people who surprised me by their, um, if not anti-European views, but saying, well, we don't really feel we've, we've, we've gained a great deal. That, that's probably a minority view. Um, but it's, it, there's that, you know, it's a warning shot across the bows. And as Jonathan said, it's, 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 it's that sort of level and, and mm. they will hope that it can stay at that, at that level and not grow even further. Well, let's run with that thought, Jonathan, because, you know, Steve, Stephen just talked there about um, the referendum that even though you've got a little bit of grumbling, sorry, well, the idea of a referendum, which is what Eccle wants, but even though you've got a little bit of grumbling about, about Europe, when push comes to shove, most people will probably stay quite loyal to the EU. Would it be politically wise once this new government has actually got its feet under the table to say, right, that's it, let's have a referendum. We've seen how the Brits have done it, so we'll we'll try to avoid that pitfall. We'll do it better. But let's have a a referendum knowing they would stand a damn good chance of winning and you can just kill kill off the whole idea once and for all and in the process weaken that right-wing party. I'm not sure that you kill off the idea. And, of course, you know, the, the, the UK referendum was a terrible example of, of, of what may happen. Be careful what you hope for, mm. uh, and so on. And, you know, if you have two major parties, as I was saying a moment ago, who've alternated uh, in power, and they win a referendum, say, with 80% of the vote, the 20% are still going to say, oh, this was all a stitch-up by the establishment. It's tough for them in terms of the outcome, but it doesn't necessarily reduce. Indeed, it may increase their resentment, uh, whatever they feel. And I'm, I don't know, I'm not uh, no kind of expert on Estonia, the, the kind of resentment they feel towards the system. Mm. But I guess as well, Stephen, that there's always the possibility that perhaps this, this party, Ekri, yes, it, it's small, but could it perhaps 
go into a coalition with some of the other smaller political parties so that way it gets a little bit more heft. In other words, you're taking a leaf out of the government's book. They're already talking about that, but I think it's, it's unlikely. I think the, the way that um, the, the Centre Party and the Reform Party have who've shared power and have basically said, you know, yeah, we'll, we, we're prepared to do that again, um, and, but we will not share with ECRI. Uh, I, I, th- I think that will... That will ring true with with most of the other parties too. Um, they're not going to be able to form the government, ECRI, um, whoever they they got a coalition with, and and you know the others have said you know we're not we're not sharing mm. with them. So I think that they will talk the talk, but I don't think they're going to uh, be in a position to walk the walk. Right. So it marginalises them for the moment, mm. but. Um, there is still the potential for them to turn the tables on on those who are who are relegating them to the sidelines. But one one final point as well is that uh, we know that Estonia, of course, is a member of NATO. Could Estonia perhaps position itself as a viable counterweight to Moscow's interference in NATO and, of course, Donald Trump's ambivalence about the alliance? They already do. I mean, they're you know they are they're, they're one of the. I think it's four countries in NATO which regularly meet the two percent of the defence budget yeah. that is that is uh, contributed to NATO. Um, okay, it's small country, small contribution, but it's still the two percent. Um, uh, you know, they are they're they are sort of have always been, as it were, in the front line. Given that you know they're on the Russian border, um, they have this large Russian minority. Uh, they understand the situation better than most, and as I was saying, they've they've dealt with it very well in the last twenty five years. So they could be that sort of beacon, if you like, for the other they NATO are members. Be- yeah. they, are, they are the beacon. They are indeed a beacon. But the light yeah. shines a lot more brightly? Yes, I think so. Um, I think, you know, I think generally the result is, is good news for Europe, for liberal views and for NATO. OK, then. Well, you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests, Stephen Diel and Jonathan Fenby. And coming up next, Beijing in lockdown. We're going to be finding out why thousands of delegates are converging on China's Great Hall of the People this week for the largest political event of the year. This issue, our editors and photographers were dispatched to all corners of France to paint a nuanced picture of the nation with panache in everything from aviation to architecture and from business to bread. We find out why Navy still suits the French in Toulon, the first port of call to see the nation's fleet mustering for a world-leading military role. We look into why the French turn on their leaders, from Macron back to the storming of the Bastille, and see how one factory nailed it and pinned down the market for specialist hardware. We also ask why the Americans are eyeing up Lyon for the future of TV, and meet the Franco-Syrian refugee who launched a global construction firm. And we see why Mont Blanc is still summit special in our photo-led expo report. Plus plenty more on what makes the Gallic nations strut so convincingly on the world stage. Monocle's March issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. Now, still with me are Stephen Dior and Jonathan Fenby. Now, China's biggest political event of the year, a meeting of legislative delegates and political advisers known as the Two Sessions, gets underway this week in Beijing's Great Hall of the People. Now, it comes at a time when the Chinese President Xi Jinping is facing one of the most challenging periods since he came to power. Locked in a bruising trade war with the United States, China's economy is slowing and there are heightened international concerns over the activities of its technology giant Huawei. 
Jonathan, I'm sure you've followed quite a few of these events in your time indeed, in China. Indeed. I mean, just put it into context for those of us who haven't had the privilege. I mean, how big an event is this? Who turns up? And does anything tangible come out of it? Well, it's, it's, it's a big event, certainly in terms of the number of people there and the attention given to it uh, by the Chinese leadership. You could say that actually it is not the most important event uh, of the year because what Xi Jinping, uh, the Chinese leader, decides in the Communist Party Politburo a separate occasion, that's a separate uh, forum, that's what really counts. But this is the legislative uh, annual show with thousands of delegates turning up uh, from all over uh, the country, most of them in dark uh, business suits, though a few ethnic uh, costumes and a few military uniforms uh, are to be seen too. And they broadly, they rubber stamp um, legislation which has been drawn up by standing committees, as they're called, of the National People's Congress and the Consultative Conference, uh, which is the other body, the equivalent of the, the upper house, if you like. Um, they rubber stamp occasionally one or two delegates abstain. One or two have been known to, on very rare occasions to vote against uh, the proposals, but this is pretty rare. Um, th so the, the interesting thing is really not so much the discussions uh, in the legislature as to what is put forward. And there'll be two things this year. First of all, whether there is legislation uh, to meet some of the American complaints uh, during the trade war, particularly over protecting foreign investments, uh, stopping technology theft and so on. And the second is the Prime Minister's annual work report, uh, as it's put, in which he will outline the economy, the state of the economy and the plans for the following year and make clear whether growth is to continue uh, at 6.5% or whether the government will accept it dropping down towards 6%. I can see you grinning, Stephen. So, lots of choreography and stage managing. Everything's already been pre-decided by the sounds yeah. of it, isn't it? Oh, I, no, well, you see, I'm I'm getting quite envious of Jonathan because um, yeah. this is taking me back to Soviet times. You know, it's it's um, <laughs> this, this was the case. You know, I'm old enough to be a, have been a Sovietologist before the breakup of the Soviet Union, and you know, this was you know, the, the decisions were all made by the Politburo of the Communist Party, and then the Supreme Soviet, as it was called, then would come together. You know, it's just this. Is this is um, uh, back, to, back to the future or back to the past or something for, for me. It just sounds so familiar. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it is, it's, it, but it's fascinating to think that more than a quarter of a century after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there is still in another huge country this very similar system, which which runs in this way where the Communist Party makes all the decisions, uh, this group comes together, rubber stamps them. Um, it's just, just exactly as it was in Soviet times. And no one dares yeah. complain just in case it's taken the wrong way. So it's, right, it's, it's meant to be a constructive observation, but... Nobody complains, <laughs> but just in case anybody thought of complaining, there is the kind of security lockdown uh, at the same time uh, in Beijing. Uh, and people who might complain, who might uh, say something, go out on the streets, who knows what, they're usually put under a controlled form, as it's called, of house arrest, or sometimes they're sent away on a holiday. Oh, yeah, actually, that, that, and that's, that's um, it, I think, is stronger than it was in Soviet times. In Soviet times, for example, for the 1980 Moscow Olympics, they basically took all the children out of the city. They, it, was in, it was in the summer, so they were on holiday yeah. anyway, but they were all sent off to summer camps, um, which tends to happen in the summer, but all of them went. You know, it was 
that was the Russians ten, have tended to do it for when big of a, uh, occasions when you get lots of foreigners coming in. So, so like like the Olympics and and student games and that sort of thing. They've done it. Um, they bothered less about their dissidents um, for meetings of the Supreme Soviet or indeed mm. for the the Congress of the Communist Party, which you know, was every five years. Um, they they felt I think that they they didn't need to kick people out. They could they could just keep them in place anyway. There is very occasionally um, a bit of drama and excitement. In 2012, for instance, uh, Bo Xilai, a rising star in the Communist Party, who the leadership was anxious to get rid of, basically, he used the National People's Congress as a forum to give uh, a lot of press conferences to increase his profile. Uh, Soon afterwards, he uh, was taken into custody for corruption and is now serving a life sentence. Right, so it's a holiday of sort, but not quite the type that he expected. Let's move on, though, to our final event, because when youngsters graduate from high school, they normally go straight to university, where they'll spend three three years or more studying for a degree. However, a counsellor in Boston, Massachusetts, believes that most young people struggle with the college environment, and he's come up with an interesting solution to that particular problem. Michael Flaherty has proposed an initiative called Year 13, which allows high school graduates to voluntarily spend an extra year at school before going into further education. I spent 18 years trying to get out of school. Why would I want to go back? (laughs) This sounds to me very like a gap year, but spent in school, you know, which is somewhat contradictory, I would have thought. But uh, perhaps in my day, uh, I'm so aged that we didn't have gap years and we just wanted to get to university as soon as possible and then get on and get a job. I mean, I guess that when you go straight to university, you cope with homesickness because you're away from your, your creature comforts and your mum and dad and all that kind of stuff, but you make your friends and then after a while it gets easier. So, yeah, Well, what I, in fact, what I did was um, I went to university uh, studying Russian and Spanish jointly, first of all, and halfway through the year realised that actually... I was doing Spanish because my Spanish teacher at school had said, oh, you must have two languages, and really I wanted to do Russian. So I actually started again at a different university and then got a year's scholarship to the Soviet Union. I did five years as an undergraduate and have never regretted it. So I would, you know, if you're going to do that extra year, I'd actually rather be away from home and, and, and you know, spreading my wings a bit and mm. uh, rather than spending another year in school. I mean, I didn't mind school. I wasn't sort of desperate to, to get out, as you seem to have been. But, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but but it was, it was, you know, life at university was far more fun. Yeah, and this seems to be leading the way towards the eternal student. I mean, you know, you have an extra day, at, uh, extra year, so extra day, extra year at school before you leave school. Well, why not have an extra year at college before you leave college and so on and so on? This could go on forever. Uh, it used to be the case, certainly in Germany, when I was correspondent there, that you would occasionally come across these 35-year-olds <laughs> who would say, oh, I'm still a student doing an extra year and so on. So, <laughs> <laughs> this is obviously a uh, maybe it's not particularly German, maybe it's elsewhere, um, but you know this is a, a, a technique, a process which could be uh, extended forever. <laughs> Indeed. On that note, it brings us to the end of today's show. Stephen Deal and Jonathan Fenby, thank you both for joining us here at Midori House. And today's show was produced by Ben Ryland. It was researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Nick Moniz. Our studio manager was Maylee Evans. More music is coming up next. Then at 1900 hours, it's the Monocle Culture Show. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. Goodbye.